We take before us the whole of chapter 4 in the book of Ezra, as was read previously, and it will be helpful for us to remember where we are. So Cyrus, under God's appointment, was so used to bring back a number of Jews to Jerusalem, and of the own, his own and royal coffers, he financed this great work. And we've seen already the number of families uh, highlighted and how it was in the last chapter that they had established uh, the altar and they had established the foundation of the temple. It was yet incomplete and yet they were rejoicing as they saw the beginnings of this great work. Though there was a mixture of sadness as they saw something of the littleness in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple, Yet there was rejoicing. In chapter 4, we have a series of oppositions. And so you'll see that from verse 1, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, thus they come. And you have these who come. You have likewise those who are identified as Samaritans. And so you see the background of a common point of conflict in the New Testament Gospels, where you have Samaritans mentioned regularly. That's not something new. That's something that goes back to this time. These who were placed in the uh, province of what became known as Samaria and corrupted God's worship. And so they were considered as a compromised people. Now, the chapter, as we read, presents to us this sequence of trials and trouble. And it's helpful for us from the outset to remember that though the Lord has his purpose and employs us for the purpose of advancing his cause, this does not mean we will not encounter trouble. In fact, difficult trouble, setbacks and disappointments and things that would frustrate us. And yet, as we'll see, the Lord has his high and holy purposes even in these troubles. The chapter emphasizes one such, which is there mentioned from verse 1 and onward through verse 5, when it speaks of those that prevailed from Cyrus unto Darius. And you'll notice this is returned to in verse 24, whereas we read then, it could be read now, cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. It ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We noted in previous times that Ezra was not a first uh, among the first who returned to this time. So he's writing as one who comes later, recording this. And interlaced, it seems, are two such other oppositions that appear. So before getting more fully into the text, notice some of the history of these kings of the Persians, Cyrus who is mentioned with prominence in the opening chapters, is the one who reigned over Persia from 558 BC to 529. The Jews returned roughly in the year 539, and this is clear as we've seen already. Cyrus has a successor, Cambyses, who reigns from 529 to 523, and then one named Smirids or pseudo Smirids for a number of reasons, reigns for roughly a year 523 to 522. Darius, so mentioned here, reigns in 522 through 485, and following him is Xerxes, 
Likely the one here mentioned as Ahasuerus reigns from 485 through 464. And this would be, if so it is, that Ahasuerus of Esther. And then finally, Artaxerxes, mentioned in verse 7, would reign from 464 to 424. This prevents, or presents then an issue of some question. Because you'll notice that there is this which is mentioned from Cyrus to Darius. You have Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, and an emphasis upon that of Artaxerxes. And then notice verse 23. Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehem and Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then we read, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we read that and we say, what's going on? How is it that Artaxerxes, who is after Darius, would be able to write a letter that stops the temple from being rebuilt before Darius? Obviously, historically, that's utterly impossible. There have been two solutions proposed. One, as mentioned, that both Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes should be seen as general titles. And so could be that Cambyses and Smerids, or another, who precedes Darius. And so this would read then in sequence in some way. However, the problem with that is Artaxerxes, who is mentioned, you'll notice in verse 7, as Artaxerxes, king of Persia, appears later in clear understanding of that Artaxerxes, who reigns from 464 to 424 in chapter 7. And notice how he appears. Now, after these things, in chapter 7, verse 1, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and so on, is brought to Babylon. And so you have the expression Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who is mentioned here in verse 7, uh, verse 6 and 7, or 7 and 8 rather, who is likewise mentioned later in Ezra. No one disputes Ezra is after uh, these things. Ezra is recording things. So what do we make of this? Well, it seems the best way to see it is not saying a sequential item, but rather there's an insertion that captures the grandeur of opposition in all generations, both in the early days of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and in the later days under Ezra and others, so forth. And so what you have then is verses 1 through 5, introducing this first wave of opposition under Cyrus through Darius. And then finally, you have a wave in verse 6 under Ahasuerus, another wave under verse 7 through 23 under Artaxerxes. But what do we make then of verse 24 when it says, then cease the work of the house of God? It's this. It's now. It's returning back. It's coming back to the front end. And so it'd be something like this, if we can think of our own nation's history. It's highlighting the trouble. We can think of our own nation's history with the problem of slavery. You can imagine someone writing in the midst of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. And here they're wrestling with issues of uh, all matter of, of issues relating to uh, race issues. Well, they might say, listen, in the Continental Congress... There was the slave trade that was going on, which led to a number of problems that got answered. 
But then there was uh, the revolution, and the revolution compromised a number of issues about handling the slave issue. And then under President Lincoln, there was the Civil War that sought to address slavery. And then under the Civil Rights Movement of Kennedy and Johnson, there were other issues. But returning to the issues of the Continental Congress, here it is, what's being done. There's a help to see that what is initially being discussed and what will be returned to be focused on has long-standing tentacles that reach for many generations to come. That's the point. And so what Ezra is helping us to see is that this is not an isolated and easy wave of trial. This is a big issue that spans the history of the advance of God's kingdom. Now, whether or not one wishes to take that, what is clear is this. The work of building God's kingdom is a work that encounters adversaries at every side. And in fact, we'll see it's not just from the adversaries outside. There's also, and as it will be recorded in Ezra, adversaries within. So when there's a great work begun by God, we have this temptation to think, wow, look what God's done. It's going to go forward without a hitch. Oh, there'll be little things, but nothing big. And what Ezra helps us to see is that from the very beginning of great works that God does, there are adversaries. And on through the advancement of the great work that God does, there are adversaries. And this is something that we see again and again throughout history. We could think of it this way. What happened when Luther nailed the 95 theses upon the doors through various churches in Wittenberg? Well, it wasn't as if all of a sudden the whole professing church came to embrace the Reformation and everyone then embraced the purity of the gospel. It's not that way at all. There were trials. Luther himself faced significant trials. Even after the Augsburg Confession was received, there were trials within Lutheranism. There were controversies that broke out. And on the Reformed wing of things, the same thing was happening. And so there are trials and difficulties and setbacks and disappointments. And yet what you'll notice is there is a beautiful expression, verse 24, then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What's being said? Yep, the trials are immense. They're many, they're multiplied, they're difficult, they're disappointing, they're frustrating, they're painful. But the trials will not conquer. The temple was completed. The walls were completed, as recorded in Nehemiah. The city was rebuilt in spite of all of these waves of disappointing and frustrating setbacks. And this is something that we need to remember today. It's easy for us to look and say, Oh God, let thy mercies come. Arise and vindicate your cause. And we see little entrances and blessings start to go. And then we encounter setback and say it's all for nothing. Brethren, that is to speak in a biblically uninformed way. We ought to expect the adversary will arise with his workers to push back against the cause. And yet we also have full confidence that the Lord will direct all things, even the trials, 
unto the praise of his name. So consider three things as we work through this together. Firstly, the work begun. Secondly, the waves of trouble. And lastly, the faith that overcomes, which by God's grace, drawn from this portion of God's word, would furnish us with encouragement in our day to labor on in faith as well. So firstly, then, the work begun. Notice how simple it is. It says the children, verse 1 of the captivity, builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. It doesn't mean that they completed it, as obviously this chapter indicates at this point, but it does mean that they were beginning the work, and they were happy to begin the work. They had this enormous eruption of praise as they begun the work, and there was great things being done. Some of them, of course, grieved by the smallness of these things, and yet, as a people, there is rejoicing. The Lord has brought us back. The Lord is at work in the midst of these days. How did this beginning begin? Well, as we saw in several weeks before, it was in the first year of, the king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Here's how the work began. It began by the word of God being fulfilled by God. And brethren, if we start there and see the work begins by God's faithfulness, by his grace, we actually have the key that opens the door of hope when we encounter setbacks and disappointments. It wasn't as if a group of people, Jerubbabel and uh, perhaps Jeshua and others got together and said, listen, we got to put this in place. We got to get this going. And then they just had the strategy and a session together and several strategic sessions. And then they went forward. No, what happened? God stirred up Cyrus in order to fulfill his word spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet. The work began as God's work. Brethren, if we start here, we have a cause of encouragement. It's the same thing that encourages Timothy. Preach the word in season and out of season. You can almost imagine Timothy as a modern preacher saying, but why? You know, so few people want to hear the word of God in our day. Can't we at least water it down? And Paul would say to Timothy, it's the word of God. It's that which is sufficient and able to make us wise into salvation, which is able to make the man of God perfect unto every good work. And so it's what they need, regardless of how things uh, appear. We realize that this is what is to be put forth because it's God's work. So preach God's word. And this is our need today is to remember it's God's work. His kingdom. Think of how Christ says it. On this rock shall I build my kingdom. Who's building it? Well, we might be as later Nehemiah and others who were gathered and building the wall and so on as instruments, but who's actually causing it to go forward? It's God. And we need to remember this and implore him to do his work, to stir us up, to give us hope, to furnish us with faith and diligence. They were favored by God to begin the work. And providentially, they were favored even by a pagan king that he should furnish the finances for their return 
for their building and even open the treasury and return unto Jerusalem those ancient and holy uh, instruments for the temple. Moreover, this work by God's grace proved fruitful. They had made advance. But notice the work begun encounters waves of trouble. So consider then, secondly, these waves of trouble. It doesn't matter truly if one wishes to force this to say, well, Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus are actually general titles. It ultimately doesn't matter. The fundamental premise is this. There are waves of trouble. It's not one individual. It's not one adversary. There are waves of adversaries. And notice the first wave comes from these who are adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And they come to Zerubbabel and the fathers, verse 2, and what is their plea? It's let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezarhad and king of Asser, which brought us up hither. Well, this is instructive because these aren't sincere God-fearers. These are, as history can demonstrate, uh, those who have compromised the worship of God. And so, whereas they put forth fair and encouraging words, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other elders, the chief of the fathers of Israel, see through it. What's their response? Verse 3, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. This is a work He's commissioned to us, those who trust in Him. We will not join with those idolaters in this work. This is somewhat instructive in our day, and you can read of this in a number of works, the so-called ecumenical movement that was at work in the 1950s onward and has in many ways depleted the ranks of many works that were God-fearing, evangelical, and earnest. And so there is this idea, well, you know, we have some basics in common with Roman Catholics. Let's join with them in some common prayer services. We have some basics in common with Eastern Orthodox. Let's join with them in spite of their idolatry. And so there's this movement that said we can all get together and emphasize the things we, be, we, we agree with and ignore the differences of, of which we uh, disagree and so on. Well, notice When Zerubbabel and Jeshua, civil leader and the priestly leader, see this, they say, absolutely not. This is not to be corrupted. Why? Well, one thing is, they knew that this was the seed of their previous problems. The bringing in of corruption into the worship of God. What had they just done? They had just set up the altar. They had just offered their burnt offerings, which are so many testimonies of their need for forgiveness for their sins. They had just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, testifying of their great dependence on God. They had just established the foundation and perhaps a few levels of the walls of the temple. And they were seeing God bring this to pass. And early on, what comes is this temptation to compromise. Wouldn't it have been easy for them to say, you know what, we could use more hands. You know what, we could use a lot more help. It's interesting, in the history of the Church of Scotland, there was a season when there was the movement to permit those who had religiously compromised 
to maintain their office in the church. And this was an entrance of all manner of trials to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the arguments was, there are so few people to take up the work before us. Brethren, we need to be aware of this. It's easy for us to look and say, wouldn't it be more helpful if we had more people and so on? Well, it could be more helpful, but the other could be true also. It could actually be more hurtful. What if the ones with whom we would join are those who would lead us astray into the compromising of the truth of God's word, the purity of his worship, the rightful oversight of his church by government and discipline, and so on? We read elsewhere in the scriptures, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And this is in back of Zerubbabel's and Jeshua's and the chief of the father's response. Ye have nothing to do with us. Notice, they were first encountering trouble by deceivers. It's interesting. This is the adversaries, which, by the way, is the meaning of Satan. Satan, as a word, means adversary. This is the adversary's first work all the time, to sneak in and with deception to promote something that seems good, only to slip in that which would destroy. So think of it for a moment. There's Adam and Eve in the garden, and what does he do? He sneaks in, as it were, with deception. Hath God said? Subtle, isn't it? It's not so direct. It's not the statement of God's a liar. It's the planting of a seed. Hath God said? And yet he's ten steps ahead of Adam and Eve and knowing what he's going to do with them. You see this throughout the scriptures, these attempts to enter in with the goal of corrupting the cause. The Samaritans likewise, who are mentioned in verse 10 and following, are those who had corrupted the worship of God. This is something we need to realize. One such trouble will come when we feel as it were our weakness and we could arguably benefit by compromising with those who have compromised. Notice this isn't the only wave of trouble. There are at least two others mentioned, whether sequential or Ezra's going further down the the road of history. And you'll notice it in verse 6. In the reign of Ahasuerus, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So not only under Cyrus, not only under uh, under, uh, Darius, verse 5, but also under Ahasuerus. And likewise in Artaxerxes, they wrote as well, and the record is written or recorded for us. And notice what's in that record. It's full of false accusation. Notice verse 12. Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city. Think of that for a moment. They're building the rebellious and bad city. Isn't that something that we hear in essence today about the church? The church is a bad institution. It's contrary to the tolerance that is to characterize our world. Look how they're homophobic. Look how they hate women. Look how they're opposed to all of these things. They are narrow-minded. They're a wicked people. 
Brethren, this isn't new. It's not as if the 21st century comes along and the world discovers a new tactic and says, here's a way, let's oppose them by throwing up all sorts of false accusations. You hear of it in the recent series of shutdowns that took place over the past couple of years and the church is pointed out as a a, a rebellious institution that won't submit. Brethren, if it were to be seen in the light of truth, Jerusalem was that good city, that peaceful city, which published the God of peace, which called nations unto peace with God. And yet, here is the false accusation. You see it in verse 13. Listen, if they build the walls, which arguably would point to Nehemiah's day, which was later than Darius, and set up again, then will they not pay toll, tribute, and custom? And so thou shalt have, so thou shalt endamage the revenue of kings. So there's an appeal to what the king would lose. And likewise, notice this very selfish argument, verse 14, because we have maintenance from the king's palace and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, have we sent and certified the king. They put themselves in this posture of care for the preservation of the honor of the king's name. Now, here's the point throughout this section. There is a twisting of history to the service of the adversaries against God and to the uh, uh, corrupting of truth against God's people. The false accusation. Brethren, we will suffer false accusations. And sometimes it will be such that we can't answer it. Not because there's not an answer, but because such is the strength and influence of those that bring the accusation to men of great influence that we have no recourse, humanly or earthly speaking, to overcome it. So you can see this, for instance, in the persecutions of the early church. Whatever the history was surrounding Nero, whether it was that he was the one who lit Rome on fire or not, he very quickly pointed the blame at the Christians. And he points to them and says, it's this unruly sect, this godless people, these who are contrary to the truth of our rules and laws. And so this massive wave of persecution fell upon the church. It wasn't as if the church could go to the courts and say, listen, I demand a trial and so on. They were rounded up. They were thrown into lion's uh, uh, dens. They were uh, paraded before uh, the nations, brought into coliseums and other such places. Their bodies not only put upon crosses, but covered with oil and lit on fire. And this was done to men, women, and children who professed the name of Christ. You see, for a moment, we could look at that and say, what's the point of being a Christian? And think of this for a moment. The church could look back and say, look how prosperous and helpful and encouraging it is to think of the days of the apostles and how the church spread so beautifully. And now look at the trouble we face, this great persecution under Nero. Perhaps it'd be better to compromise. Perhaps it'd be better to take a step back. Perhaps it'd be better not to be so zealous for the cause of truth. Brethren, they, with us, could look back to the history of God's people here recorded and say it's no new tactic. It's no new work. 
There will be seasons where God permits and even orders troubles to come by false accusations which cannot be substantiated and yet which cannot be overthrown because his people are in a weak position against rulers. Now, we ought to see here that in verse 6, it's in the reign of Ahasuerus in the beginning of his reign, which, if this is of Xerxes, explains why he was one who stood opposed to the Jews early in his reign, whereas later, after a decade or more, he was married unto Esther and proved a friend of the Jews, which would explain why there was some stopping that took place there. But notice, this wave of trouble comes. Another wave of trouble comes. Another wave of trouble comes. And brethren, the church will face that as well. But notice in the waves of trouble, there is the advance still of God's kingdom. And so, though there's a wave of trouble that extends from Cyrus to Persia, or from Cyrus to Darius, notice verse 24, it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so, there's a season where it advances again. And though under Ahasuerus, the implication is it advanced again until the days of Artaxerxes. And though under Artaxerxes, notice what will happen in chapter 7, Ezra will return and instruct the people in the way of God. Notice in chapter 5, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah will arise and strengthen the hands of those who were in the days of Cyrus unto Darius. The Lord is his way of sustaining his people in the fiery furnace of trial and affliction, preeminently by his grace, but instrumentally by his word. So it's instructive that when it comes to be that the work of the house ceases from Darius or from Cyrus to Darius, what happens? God sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And when there's difficulty in Artaxerxes' day, what does he do? He sends Ezra the scribe. And who was this Ezra the scribe? He is that one who had set his heart, prepared his heart, chapter 7, verse 10, to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Here's the point. The wave of troubles are preparative for the wave of provision to strengthen and to advance his cause. So we ought to see this. Here comes a wave. Perhaps we feel a wave right now. Perhaps we feel the trouble. What we ought to say is, so be it. God will raise up, support, help, and advance his cause. It may be my, that even my life will perish, but that's not the end of the church. That's not the end of the advance of Christ's kingdom. If I die a martyr, I die a martyr, which by definition is a witness, a testifier that Christ is true and he will prevail. And so I'm willing to seal that testimony, to authenticate that testimony by my blood. So it is in our day, we are persuaded that if we are marginalized, set aside, if our numbers decrease and churches, as it were, are are less uh, frequent across the map of the United States, though it grieves us, it doesn't bring us to a point of despondency to say all hope is lost. We say this is a wave of trouble and yet God will advance his cause in spite of it. I was told by one who speaks to various Chinese missionaries that she was provided an interesting 
uh, a word from one who serves in China. And he said, I hesitate to say it, but in many ways, I feel as if I should tell the Westerners to stop praying for the end of the persecution of the church in China. This is a Chinese minister saying this to one who was supporting missions in China. And she was dumbfounded almost. What do you mean? Why would we be instructed not to pray? And he says, because the Lord is using it to refine and advance his cause. Now, he didn't go on to say, don't pray. But rather, he said to her, instead of merely praying, end the persecution, end this trouble, pray God raise up that support that's needed to advance your cause even in the face of it. And if you should remove the trouble by persecution, let it not remove that advance of your kingdom and the cooling of affection. Well, thirdly, the faith that overcomes. You can see it in a few ways in this passage. The first is steadfastness in chapter 4 and there at verse 3. Notice, when Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others say, ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. They say, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. Brethren, this is the resolve we need, a resolve to be steadfast and faithful. We look and we see the advantages, arguably, that could be gained by compromise. And we say, absolutely not. We in our day will labor. Oh, this might be to our great setback. This might be to less advance. No, God has called us. In our station, we'll be faithful. What is this? This is that gracious virtue of faithfulness, of steadfastness. It is to look, as it were, the enemy in the eye and say, God who is faithful has called me to this post and I will set my hand to the plow, not looking back. Many times in history, uh, young men have been stirred by the accounts of the Spartans. The Spartans are reported to have had only light armor on their front and no armor on their back. And the Spartan women were particularly highlighted as buying into this system and saying things well recorded and well known, saying, come back either with your shield or on your shield. The idea is you will not turn back and flee from the enemy. You'll go forth, you'll stand steadfast, you'll be faithful to the cause of Sparta. Brethren, what's Sparta? To the kingdom of God. And yet we have so many of us who are ready at the first appearance of all of the difficulties of our adversary to turn and flee and hide. When instead we are called to look them in the face and say, God as later ones will say, has called us to a great work. We cannot come down. We will not come down. Someone says, but what if you're forced to come down? Well, we see, don't we, that they were forced to stop the work. By force, it was so. Notice under Artaxerxes in verse 23, it says that they they made them to cease by force and power. But brethren, there's a world of difference between being made by force and power to cease doing something versus voluntarily complying with an order to cease. So for instance, you think of the shutdowns that took place. There were some who were forced not to join. But brethren, 
An unlawful calling to the church to cease to gather is no hindrance of us coming. There's a world of difference between the CDC saying, you know what, you shouldn't gather, the president saying you shouldn't gather, the talking head saying you shouldn't gather, and a tank being planted in the road saying you can't gather. The latter is force and power. But here's the problem. Many in the church heard the word and said, we're done. We're going to stop. We're going to submit. We're going to obey. That's different than what took place here. They were by force and power made to cease. We could put it in our day to say policemen had come and boarded up and locked up the places. They were constrained to do so. What's the point? Steadfastness looks to God and says, I follow him. If in his providence he forces me to stop, I'll stop. But until that time, I will be faithful to him and follow him in the work to which he's called me. But there's also something that can be inferred from verse 24. Steadfastness is there, and yet they were brought to a point of stoppage. But notice, they continued waiting upon God. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's not as if it came and they said, well, I guess we're done. Let's give up. When the force was withdrawn, they were instant back at it. There was no, well, I don't know how this is going to go. They were right away. Well, why was that the case? It was because they were waiting upon the Lord. They were looking to him. They were pleading his cause. They were yearning to be liberated in order to serve. And this is something we need to realize. The spirit of the church is to be earnest in looking to serve. And yes, if the Lord in providence puts true obstacles, we can't turn those obstacles over. But so soon as the obstacle is removed, we're back at it. We don't hesitate. We aren't saying, well, let's sort of ease back into this. No, we're flooding. Think of this for a moment. If you have water coming downhill and you put some obstacle in its way sufficient to keep it from going further, it's not as if so soon as that obstacle is removed that the water says, well, let's just sort of figure out what we're going to do. It instantly goes down the, the hill. And this is true of the church. The church is going forward and the gates there stand as Christ says, but Christ tells us the gates of hell aren't going to prevail. And so soon as they break down, the church is on the next step going forward. And this is true. Wave after wave after wave come and hinders the progress of Christ's kingdom here in Ezra. But so soon as the obstacles are removed, it's gone forward. Brethren, this is the type of waiting that we need, not the waiting of idleness, but the waiting of asking and seeking and knocking. And so soon as the door's opened, we're walking through it. So soon as the Lord provides it, we're advancing. This is the faith that overcomes. The steadfastness to prevail until perhaps an immovable obstacle arises that we can overcome. But when such comes, we wait knowing. Here's the confidence we have. Here's the faith that overcomes. We are confident that the obstacle that now is will be removed. God will cause it to be overthrown. He may do it in a variety of ways. He may do it in different manners. But it will come to pass. What are we called to do then? 
with faith to wait on the Lord, with diligence to serve the Lord. Yes, one obstacle will be overcome and a new obstacle will be presented. But this is the point, as has been stated throughout the history of the church. The church in this world is the church militant. No one in a campaign of war says, okay, we've won a battle, therefore the war's over. Nor should the Christian say, oh, I've just come through a heavy battle, therefore the war's over. Could you imagine either side, the north or the south, at Gettysburg and say, well, that was a big battle, the war's over. If the north had done that, they never would have gone forward and advanced and overcome the south. If the South had done that, it wouldn't have been at Appomattox that the war was over. It would have been at Gettysburg that the war was over. Here's the point. You and I are in a campaign of war individually as a congregation and as a church until death. Period. You have seasons of open battles and war, as it were, so clearly before you, and God brings you through it, and by His grace you overcome. The congregation will have seasons of that. The whole church will have seasons of that. But if we mistake the time that follows those battles to say the war is over, we'll be overwhelmed when the next battle comes and say, what's this? I thought it was over. No. We remain the church militant until the church victorious in heaven. And we stand knowing that our children and our children's children after us are in this campaign. And when we die, they will continue this battle, ultimately until the King of heaven and earth returns. Now think of that for a moment. Far from being something that is discouraging, this reminds us that we are involved in a campaign of certain victory, guaranteed success. The end has been written. The end has been held forth to us. Think of it this way. You know, what are the Jews doing? They're building the house of God. Did they have confidence that this should come to pass? Well, God had prophesied of it to them through Jeremiah. It was certain, it was secure, and yet they have these obstacles and setbacks. Well, think for a moment what we are. We are the temple of God. Christ has said he will build his kingdom and we have setbacks and we're tempted to say, it's not worth it. But he's already told us the end. The kingdom of God shall succeed. Christ the king will return not to this beggarly institution, but a glorious church. Brethren, this is the certain future that is before you and me. God has given us this post. He's placed us at this time. Now, maybe you and I would like to have been placed in a previous generation or perhaps at that generation that shall be when Christ returns. But that's not us to, ours to decide. He in his infinite wisdom has said, you will best serve me at this time, in this place, with these people, in this season, in this culture. And it's for us to be faithful, trusting him, knowing that he has a purpose for us to hold the banner of Christ and to see it not step backward, but to maintain and go forward. Well, there's much more in the chapter before us. We close with several points of application. The first of this of these is this. We have need to learn. We need to learn so that none of us think that the noble, the great, and the glorious work of advancing God's kingdom 
shall be experienced without troubles and trials and difficulties. Now, brethren, you know as well as I that it's one thing to know that on paper. It's one thing for us to know that and say, you know, theoretically, yep, I get it. It's a whole different thing to face that practically. Right now, our congregation is in a difficulty of the discipline case that we've been praying through. That's a massive difficulty. It's a setback. It's a hurtful burden. And we could be tempted to say, is it worth it? Is it worth our being faithful? Is it worth our carrying out the ordinance of Christ in these things? Is it worth our striving in our day? Because look at the pain we encounter. I look at other churches. They don't do discipline. They call it a hurtful thing. And they got happy people. They've got more people. They've got all sorts of people and things that are going well. Brethren, we need to stand with that renewed steadfastness of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and say, we will build unto the Lord God of Israel this house for him. It's not our house, it's his. And so we labor for him. And brethren, let's be frank. When this trial passes, there will be another. When this difficulty is over in this life, mark it down. There will be another trial that comes. There will be something different, something painful that shall be encountered. It wasn't as if they overcame the difficulties of Cyrus and Darius that season and nothing else came. Other trials came. And brethren, after the book of Ezra, after the book of Nehemiah, other troubles came. And this is true in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And after the book of Acts, Trials come. Trials will continue. Christ said it so clearly. In this world, ye shall have tribulation. We need to acknowledge that. We need to understand that. We need to realize that this life will have tribulation. Someone says, well, then I'm out. Well, Christ has already told us, hasn't he? Consider the cost. You know, you're going to be my disciple. Consider the cost. You need to realize this. If you're going to be my disciple... You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He's the captain. He's the commander. He's the king. He's the one who calls the shots. We don't have this right of deliberation with him and say, you know, I think there's a better way here. Wouldn't it be better and be more beneficial to the church if you sort of remove this and put something else here? And we dare start to try to persuade Christ to a wiser course. Christ could simply turn to us and say, You're to deny yourself and die to yourself and follow me. That's a disciple. But brethren, he doesn't call us to that, to some morbid experience of nothing but pain. When he says, in the world you shall have tribulation, he then says, but be of good cheer, be of good courage. We're like, what are you talking about? How can I have good courage when you just said, this will make up my life. I'm going to have tribulation, not just one, but in one sense, a lifetime of tribulation. He says, well, here's why. Here's why you're to be of good courage. Here's why you're to be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The world is standing as an adversary against me, against my people. But here's the hope I've overcome. And I've already told you. I stand victorious and you're part of my kingdom. And when the story is told at the end of the ages, 
you who are faithful and follow me and who deny yourselves and take up your crosses and do that to my glory will be held forth as the heroes of history. Think of that for a moment. It's not Alexander the Great who's going to be paraded before history and say, what a great leader. It's not this president or that president, this uh, commander, that commander who's going to be brought before and say, look what they did. It's not as if God's going to say, okay, now let's look at the great leaders of history and all of those great names from Cyrus to Darius to uh, uh, Alexander the Great to others after him. Look at all these great kings. He's going to bring before us all of the foot soldiers of his kingdom and say, look at what they did to advance my cause. Look at what they did in the face of opposition. Look when the world hurled its worst at them, when Satan himself was breathing curses upon them, when they were isolated alone and everything else fled from them. What had they but a strong grip upon my kingdom? They trusted in me. And now I, in the open face of all history, declare this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my brother. This is my sister. This is my bride. And the world will see the glory of the church. And on that day, you will look back upon every single battle, every single trial, every single difficulty. And you'll be able to say something along these lines. The work ceased until you'll see the glory of God's temple descending from heaven and you will enter therein and Christ will magnify his mercy and grace all the more. We need to learn these things that we enter into the kingdom of glory as those who are in the kingdom of grace, who face difficulties, setbacks, and troubles. Well, what do we do then? We plead. We plead with God, who stirred up Cyrus, who stirred up Jeshua and Zerubbabel and the uh, chief of the fathers, who stirred up those who came back, who later would send Haggai and Zechariah and would then raise up Ezra and Nehemiah and others of their day. And we pray, Lord, we have need of your sustaining of us. So supply it, provide it, give help to us, nourish our souls, and provide us what is needed. Brethren, be not weary in well-doing. We are called to take hope that the one who sows his seed with tears shall bring back his sheaves rejoicing. That's a promise on which we must rely. For the same God who is faithful to his word, which was prophesied by Jeremiah, will show himself faithful to his word throughout the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Would you stand with me for prayer?